Hello, everybody. I want to say good morning, everybody, because actually, though you don't know this, it's morning and it's a Sunday morning in Massachusetts and California and Maryland. And uh, this is Charlie Swenson, and this is the podcast to hell and back. And uh, I want to say a, a preliminary thing, just with what this topic is today with my guests, uh, Amara Brooke and Rachel Krauss, both of whom have been with me for two podcasts and Rachel for three, or maybe Rachel's been with one and Amara's been with three. And we've been, <laughs> we've been talking about autism and uh, adaptations of DBT uh, to autism. What's the intersection between DBT and treating autistic folks that are in DBT? And we've talked, looked at it from several angles, and today we're going to look at it very, very specifically from when you teach skills. Since DBT's skills are sort of at the center of what is thought to be the change agent in DBT, the agent that helps people regulate emotions better, which then changes lots of things. So that's true also for autistic folks, but with autistic folks, you have to adapt to the fact that they have a certain neurotype, autism. And, uh, and, and DBT has been all about adapting ever since Linehan started it. Um, it was adapted to addictions. And that included adapting the skills to people with addictions because they have certain lifestyles and they encounter certain challenges with their addictions. And then I, I, I adapted it quickly to inpatient treatment that required adapting skills. Uh, we had to add some skills like how to be empathic in responding to fellow patients on the unit in certain group meetings, how to leave meetings angrily but without hurting anybody or doing yourself in, all kinds of skills that we added on and we teach skills with an eye to somebody's in an inpatient setting. This is about teaching skills to people with an eye to the fact that they have aut an autism neurotype. And as we went over in a previous podcast, and there's, like I said, there's three available if you want to go back to listen to them. Um, we, you're not trying to change autism by, uh, your, your goal isn't to target autism and change autism, which is one common misunderstanding in the DBT world. Autism is a neurotype. So you, we're not trying to change that. It's part, that's a built-in part of the nervous system. It's a way of thinking. It's a way the brain works. We're trying to help people with autism achieve their goals in life and regulate their emotions, which are the big goals of DBT for everybody, right? So, uh, so what do you have to do when you teach skills? Uh, now, my guests are experts uh, from several angles on the topic, you know, uh, Amara Brooke is a clinical psychologist in Silicon Valley area, the Bay Area, the San Francisco area, and she's been doing uh, DBT for many years, and she's a, a clinical psychologist who also does testing, and she does psychotherapy with other models as well, and she uh, works, she has a subspecialty working with people with autistic neurotypes and ADHD, and she's um, and she herself has acknowledged in the previous podcast that she has autism and ADHD. So she knows this from the inside as well. 
Same with Rachel Krauss, who's from the Baltimore area, and she's a clinical social worker with uh, and psychotherapist and DBT therapist and DBT teacher and other models of treatment as well. And she also focuses a lot on autism and ADHD. And she also has acknowledged that she herself has uh, autism and ADHD. So we're rich with resources here, and we've got to just try to channel them into these are two people who know what it's like both to give and receive DBT skills uh, with autism. And so I'm going to be basically the moderator. We're going to go through a bunch of topics like, what about this about autism? What about this feature of autism? What about this way of being autistic? What are the implications for how do you teach skills? We're not going to be able to be totally comprehensive and cover how do you redo every skill and every worksheet and every handout and every mindfulness exercise, all of which would be valuable if that's what you're doing. But we can't do that. It's just a matter of observing our own personal limits, time limits here. So uh, we're, we're going to hit on some things that these guys have found to be helpful. And, uh, and we know that we're not going to hit on everything. Feel free to write me uh, at through my... Um, website or 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 leave messages uh, 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 ratings and reviews on wherever you listen to podcasts and then I can get these uh, questions and comments and I can also get them to to Amara and Rachel so Amara and Rachel welcome um, good to thank see you Charlie it's great to be back thanks for having us yeah thank you Charlie thanks for uh, being willing to jump in on a Sunday morning <laughs> um, <laughs> All right, so um, uh, so let, we're going to we, there's going to be several themes you might say or features that will and that a DBT therapist will encounter in working with an autistic individual, so uh, or an or a group of autistic individuals. So we're going to start with one, and I actually don't know which of my guests is going to take on which topic or or whether they're going to share them, but that's up to them. Um, so the first topic is it has to well, let's call it the topic of invisibility is that you're treating somebody uh, with DBT and from your point of view, their autism is invisible. They have spent their life learning how to uh, hide it, mask it, not have it show up because it's stigmatized or because they've been mistreated in the past, they've been invalidated. And so masking is a big deal, which we're going to come back to. And so what do you do with the, how, how, you, how do you deal with the problem of invisibility? Do you screen people for autism? Uh, how do you check on that? Or, or how do you wake up to the fact that somebody has autistic features? So I'm going to hand this over to whoever's going to take it from here. So this is Amara. I will hop in first. Um, thank you so much, Charlie, for um, hosting us doing this topic. Um, so as far as, you know, figuring out am I working with an autistic person? I think that's just a question that, you know, isn't on the mind of a lot of DBT therapists when they start a therapy process. I think most people are, you know, might we, most of us start with some sort of maybe screening questionnaires, maybe just a, a clinical interview. Um, and, you know, usually we're looking for things like um, personality differences, um, trauma history, anxiety, depression, you know, suicidal thoughts and behaviors, self-harming um, thoughts and behaviors. Those are all things that are on our radar screen. 
but in many cases, autism and or ADHD may not be on our radar screen unless the client already has one of those um, diagnoses and has told us about it. Um, so uh, I'm just going to suggest at the beginning, because autistic clients, you know, first of all, there are a lot of adults who don't even know that they're autistic. A lot of folks who, you know, because of differences in diagnosis, didn't get diagnosed when they were children. Um, people may not even know. So I would suggest um, a couple of things. One is if you do screening questionnaires before you start treatment, some people will do things like a PHQ-9 or a GAD-7 or maybe, uh, you know, a difficulties in emotion regulation scale, a borderline symptom list, or just various kinds of screeners. You know, you might add some quick things that would look at the possibility of potential um, autism or ADHD. Um, there's a really quick seven-item questionnaire, the ASSERT, um, which I find convenient to throw in kind of a screening questionnaire packet. There's some longer things like the um, autism quotient or the RADS-R, which are kind of longer, more thorough um, screeners for autism. Um, there's the ASRS for ADHD, which is not perfect, but widely available and fairly brief. Um, so if you're already doing kind of screening questionnaires at the beginning, that's kind of an easy way to throw in um, some questions that might um, you know, help raise your awareness that you may have an autistic or ADHD individual in treatment with you. Um, there are many questionnaires available on a website called embrace-autism.com. Um, so if you're not quite sure where to find these questionnaires, um, that would be a place. And the ones that I mentioned are all freely available. They're not ones that you have to pay for each administration or anything like that. Um, many um, therapists are already using um, electronic means like um, psych surveys or things like that to collect outcome measures. And that might be another way that you could do initial screening questionnaires if you're trying to figure out the nuts and bolts of administration, which I know is something that my detailed brain always gets a little bit hung up on. Um, and then in terms of once they're actually in your office, um, I would say, you know, really because, you know, people may come in the office being a little guarded, being a little hesitant with the new therapist, and that could be true for any client, especially also traumatized clients, but just really inviting openness, being open and curious, um, and, you know, asking questions that might, you know, give you a hint whether, you know, somebody has an autistic or ADHD neurotype, um, and I'm just going to throw out some ideas here, but certainly don't limit yourself to these things. Um, you know, questions like, have you had any social or communication differences um, in your life? Um, any differences in how you respond to other people or in how other people respond to you in ways that are kind of confusing? Like, I don't know, like, why did they take offense to that thing that I said? Or, you know, why are they, why are they upset with me? I don't even know. Um, you know, differences, any differences in sort of like, do you ever have trouble kind of picking up on like nonverbal signals that other people say that they're sending and they're like, how did you not know that I was, you know, thinking or feeling that? And you're like, I don't know, like, I'm not even sure what I missed, right? Or do other people, does it seem like other people project things onto you? And you're like, why do you think I'm angry? I don't know that I'm angry or I don't think I'm angry, right? Is there any differences in kind of you know, back and forth in terms of nonverbal signaling in your life. Um, any differences in relationships, like, um, you know, having difficulty, you know, starting relationships with people or figuring out like, what are, what are the things I need to do to maintain a relationship? Like, I'm not really sure even 
what's involved with that or needing more time to myself than other people do. And do you ever get flack from other people for, you know, not being as available to them as they would wish that you were? Um, I mean, obviously these are things that don't only apply to autistic people, but these are things that, you know, a lot of autistic people would um, have, you know, some experience with. Um, in terms of the other, so that those questions all kind of speak to the social communication differences kind of part of autism. Um, there's also what we call the sort of like repetitive behaviors aspect, which I think is a, a poor term, but um, asking things like, are there any behaviors that you do um, or sounds that you make or things that you look at or anything that are soothing to you that you kind of do over and over again and that you find to be like helpful when you're upset or when you're overwhelmed or, or things like that. Um, how is it for you coping with change? You know, especially if it's unexpected of somebody kind of, you know, asks you to do something unexpected or changes a plan, you know, at the last minute, like, is that, you know, about, I mean, of course it's a little hard for everybody, but is that, a, is that harder for you than for other people? Um, do people ever give you a hard time about needing more, you know, structure than other people do or needing more of a heads up? Um, are there, um, you know, things that you love that you like to spend lots of time doing and or talking about, you know, do other people ever like tease you about having such, you know, strong interests and passions and, you know, maybe even a little jealousy that you are more interested in that than you are in them or, you know, things like that, right? Have you ever had an experience like that? Um, are you, are there, um, do you have sensory differences, like anything that really bothers you in terms of sight, smells, sounds, you know, touch, like motion that maybe doesn't bother, that other people have commented that doesn't bother them and what's wrong with you that it bothers you? Um, are there, um, you know, any things that, you know, sensory things where you need more sensory input, like where you really crave, like, you know, movement, spinning, um, you know, rocking, like any kind of like, or you need like more pressure to feel something. You're somebody who needs the deeper tissue massage, right? Like, are there any things where you need more to be able to like, feel like you have enough in terms of like sensory input? Um, and that, so I would say that kind of speaks to, obviously that's not a be all and all of questions related to autism, but just some things on kind of the surface. Um, for ADHD, I would say, you know, just any differences in paying attention, especially the things that aren't very interesting to you, maybe getting sucked down a rabbit hole with things that are interesting to you and not being, you know, able to get out when you need to, um, feeling restless or having a lot of energy, kind of impulsivity, leaping before you look type of thing. Um, so those are just some like ideas. And the other thing I would say is, you know, don't overvalue your intuition, but do notice if you're kind of like, there's something different about interacting with this person in my office. Like, I'm not sure what it is. I maybe need to reflect on that, but I'm just noticing a little, you know, my spidey senses are kind of like, hmm, like I'm just noticing something a little bit different, right? And I'm not saying to be judgy about it, but just notice that experience of being kind of in the room or on the Zoom with, you know, the person and like, what do you notice, you know? Um, so that, that's about, I'm going to stop there because I know we were, we only have so much time. Um, and I wanted to hand it over to Rachel to, um, talk about, about other things to be mindful of at the beginning of treatment to try to notice whether you, um, might, you know, have an autistic or ADHD client in treatment with you. Thanks, Mara. Um, 
you covered a lot of the stuff uh, that I was going to talk a little bit about, but I, I just kind of wanted to add a little bit. Sometimes autistic and or ADHD or ADHD, which is that combination of traits where you can actually qualify for uh, both neurotypes. Um, sometimes we don't know that we have them because of the genetic component and we grew up in these families and this is this interaction is seen as our normal this is our parents oh that's hard for you well that's hard for me too just because they don't so you know Amara what you were saying about having somebody in your office feeling something a little different and if you are an ADHD an ADHD an autistic clinician also finding that there's some similarities you feel more comfortable working with this client um even if they're not identifying it in themselves. But I use, um, I take a more util utilitarian approach after a diagnostic and doing like a sensory profile with all my clients, as well as a learning style assessment. Um, just so I can be teaching them skills in a way that they best learn. And, you know, using, are you a visual learner? Are you an auditory learner? And then with sensory profiles, it's number one, we don't know what we don't know if nobody's, if somebody's ever, never asked them. You know, is there something you like to do when you feel dysregulated? And then they say, oh, yeah, I watched the same show over and over and over again. That, that might be some indicator there. Um, and that we're getting to know where our clients are very, very sensitive and where they need more input because we're just wired differently. Um, so when we're if we're creating groups that we're not putting people with conflicting sensory needs there. Um, or directly conflicting. And if we are, we're doing it with a uh, problem solving approach. Nobody's needs are more important than someone else's. Um, they're just different. And that we're taking this into account, these sensory differences, they're going to come up in all of the skills. And we're always kind of keeping it in the back of our mind that this person just is in the world differently. And the last thing I want to talk a little bit about <laughs> is processing, Steve, or processing, because um, autistic clients. My colleague, Matt Lowry, talks a lot about this hyper-connected brain um, with so many neurons firing. We, re we refer to it as a delay in processing speed. And one of the ways I explain it to clients is like, you just have so much extra going on there. Like if you have a computer that's, you're, you're looking for, you're running a program and you're looking for something in that program, you're um, looking for a piece of data, it's gonna take, that much longer for the output if it's running through a whole lot more information. And with a hyperconnected brain, sometimes that's what's going on. So we've got people who are processing internally that we as therapists aren't making an assumption. This person's zoning out. This person's not participating. They're uh, dissociating. They may be, and they may not be. It may be that they're just processing it all. It's gonna take them a beat to think. They may not be as adept to you know, answering right away. Um, and then there's the other side of it, which is people who process externally. So that's that's what I am, I'm an external processor. If you have a client who's talking and talking and talking in group, and you're like, okay, get to your point. And they may not actually know what their point is because they're literally figuring it out. They're running through all this information in their brain out of their mouth because they can't do it inside their head. Mm -hmm. And it's really, really high. Uh, you know, you have this detailed story, it's hard to prioritize what, you know, what information to provide and what not. Um, even writing notes like I have in front of me doesn't feel quite adequate. Um, it can be frustrating if you're interrupting those folks because they're like, I'm getting there, I'm getting there, I'm getting there, I'm just trying to get there, I'm trying to actually put words to that connection that my brain sees so clearly, right? And that we're accounting for those. 
And, um, you know, the last piece of that is that we're really uh, sitting in this neuro humility, this, this aspect of cultural humility. We don't, uh, making the assumption we don't know what's going on in that person's brain until we can really sit and get curious and um, aren't passing judgment or assumptions because that can really do more harm. And that will show up over and over again as well. Great. Wow. You guys just covered a ton of stuff that I'm glad this is a podcast because people could listen to it again. And, and if they wanted to take notes or if they wanted to get something down or think about something, it's it's all here. And that and boy, it just I can see that this could go on. This one topic could go a long time. Um, thank you so much. I mean, and, and I'll just add one little caveat as somebody myself who has worked with some autistic people that I didn't know were autistic when I was first working with them and that I'm not an expert in it and that I haven't used those kind of screens. In a way, teaching DBT skills systematically, week by week, skill by skill, is a screening device. <clears throat> because I've taught skills where somebody actually, I'm just at, I'm in the middle of teaching a skill and I encounter, oh my God, this person has no idea. Uh, about how to do this, or this person doesn't know how to say no. And there's lots of reasons for that. But what's going on in their head, or somebody sits in a group facing away from the group, not looking at anybody. And people have various ways to interpret that behavior. But in the person I'm thinking of, she actually was taking everything in, but she didn't want to have to look at the group. And she wore sunglasses and stuff like that. So the, and, and there's a million examples of this. I just gave a couple, but I, I'm thinking of others. But I just want you to know, not all is lost if you didn't do a screening device at the beginning, because you start to, as soon as you, I thought what Rachel said was so helpful about the intuition, is that you say, oh, wait a minute. And you, your intuition tells you there's something a little different here, and you can follow up on it. Now, I, there are other things to say, but I think we need to move on because there's, I'm, I'm the moderator and, and I know how many topics we're going to cover. Rachel, I can see you want to say something further. So, Charlie, it's, it's one sentence. That's that very first part of that missing link analysis is can the client actually do the thing I'm asking them to do? And it sounds like as you're teaching the skills, you really are keeping that in the forefront of as I'm teaching this, can you actually do it? And that'll show as we go. Yeah. That's all I want to add in. Okay. So second topic is about what something, it's funny, it's, um, earlier Amara said something like, you know, my she, she referred to herself and she said, my detail brain. And now detail brain, direct thinking brain, specific brain, logical brain, Whatever you call this sort of detail, uh, being direct, being literal, taking things literally, being meant to be taken literally, all of these things that have to do with being literal and specific and detailed and logical and this stuff, which a lot of autistic people bring with their neurotype. What are the implications for skills training with that? Because there are some skills that don't, that aren't, don't sound very literal and that are kind of like metaphorical or kind of vague and stuff like that. So I wanted to open the, the door to how do you address that? And are there certain skills that are hard to teach because of people's so-called detail brain? So 
So I'll start speaking to that. Um, and I, I think I want to say at the beginning of this that, you know, we often say you've met one autistic person, you've met one autistic person. So not all autistic people are the same this way. Um, with this, I'm speaking a bit to my own experience, but I know that a lot of um, there are many autistic people who do have a very detailed processing, like Rachel said, kind of hyper connected. There's a lot of stuff going on in there. Um, we're trying to sort of connect everything. And, um, you know, that there are um, some folks who have different degrees of ease or difficulty with um, non-realistic kind of metaphors, I guess. And, you know, obviously a lot of autistic people are extremely creative and create a lot of fantasy worlds and are involved in that kind of thing. And, um, and I, I think it's just important that we don't make an assumption that, you know, every autistic person only has to have things that are 100% literal and realistic, or, you know, they can handle any kind of, you know, fantasy stuff. I mean, there's going to be a wide variety, but I'm just kind of speaking here to one thing, which is that with some of the DBT skills, there's a lot of vague language and a lot of things that just don't even to a literal detailed brain seem like um they're like it's even obvious how it works and i find my have found myself when i teach dbt skills um you know sometimes getting hung up on that and i have, sometimes have clients that that get hung up on that so that's kind of what i'm speaking to here um i just want to say communication is a core difference in autism um, and if a client is what we'd say non-speaking or sometimes people say non-verbal, we obviously would realize that communication is going to be different, right? Um, however, even if a client speaks clearly and eloquently, communication may also be different, right? And this, um, how we're interpreting things um, in this sort of detailed, literal, direct communication style is one way that it can be different. Um, so I would say that the the issues around sort of vague, I want to use the term woo-woo, although I'm mindful that might not make sense to everybody because it, <laughs> um, but there's a lot of this language that comes up in mindfulness, I think most of all um, in terms of the DBT skills. Um, so I would just say, you know, for some folks, just be aware of language that may be really vague or not literally possible. I'm going to give some examples here just because I know me just saying vague language might also not be clear to people. Um, but it just be give, give a disclaimer if there might be unrealistic aspects of the mindfulness exercise or language that's vague. Be prepared to define and and um, entertain and not dismiss questions about vague terms or vague assumptions. Um, be prepared to explain something in a way that is more straightforward. So I'm just going to throw out some examples. These are, I think, mostly from mindfulness, uh, or actually, I think this is from the introduction. So what is there's a reference to emptiness, right? I think a lot of people who don't know clinical terminology like might not have any idea what emptiness means. And then it also could be interpreted literally, which is confusing. Um, you know, willfulness, right? That shows up in the introduction before it's even really been defined. Um, there's, uh, from the mindfulness section, experience the reality of your connection to the universe, your essential validity. There's references to the wisdom within each person, to letting yourself fall into the center space between the pauses and your breath, um, you know, breathing the sounds into your body and letting them flow on your out breath, you know, focusing <laughs> on the space between your eyes, um, you know, references to 
I feel the chair, the chair feels me, you know, feeling thankful to the, an object for being kind to you, um, et cetera, right? So there's a lot of these things that can be fairly vague that like, you're like, I don't even know what that means. And that doesn't even seem like literally that could be true. And it just can be really confusing if you do have a very like, literal, rational kind of, you know, deal to, detailed brain. Um, and I'll, you know, disclose that like I'm autistic and I come from a family of scientists and I also have like a lot of sort of scientific training. So we tend to like, you know, probably be far on the end of that, um, you know, literalness. And there's, as Rachel has pointed out to me, you know, plenty of autistic people who, you know, actually infer a lot of uh, human characteristics to objects or, um, you know, all, all kinds of things. So this is not true for every autistic person, but just consider that vague language may, there's also a lot of mindfulness exercises that have kind of vague language like this. Um, so just when there is something kind of vague or if a client, you know, who may be autistic or maybe you don't know they're autistic, but they have issues with like, I don't really even know what that means. You know, just be aware that that's a valid difference, um, to, you know, to see things that way and, and be prepared to be more specific. Um, to give a few specific examples, um, so I, I would say in the worksheets, there's some worksheets that have instructions that are very clear, and there's some that have work instructions that can be somewhat ambiguous. So kind of be prepared to clarify if people have concerns about instructions being ambiguous. Um, and, you know, again, a lot of autistic people, I don't think we've said it in this episode yet, but many of us have, at, have been the person in class who asked a million questions and we have gotten flack for asking so many questions and wanting so many specifics and so many details. Um, and, you know, that is a completely valid thing to want. And you may not always know every answer and that's fine. That's part of the neuro humility that Rachel was mentioning to say, gosh, that's a really interesting way to look at that. Like, I'm not even really sure. Let me give that a little bit of thought, right? That's a sort of humble, like, wow, what an interesting way to look at it. Not that like you're wrong for wanting to ask questions, but I've also seen not only have had my own experiences with being given a hard time for asking so many questions. Um, but, you know, seeing DBT therapists that I've been teaching with kind of uh, pathologize a little bit or give clients a hard time for asking a lot of questions instead of just kind of accepting that that's what they need and doing your best to, you know, to meet that need. Um, I wanted to say a few examples um, in distress tolerance. I really love the factors that interfere with radical acceptance, it's super, it's actually like almost a response to the types of questions that autistic people often ask. I love that it's so specific. Um, the radical acceptance step-by-step -step is a fantastic addition to the latest manual. Um, I think radical acceptance was a much more vague concept in the original version of the manual. And those, um, both the, you know, factors that interfere and the step-by-step -step are great, clear step-by-step -step examples of how to do skills. I would say there's other places in the manual that are not yet up to that, you know, standard in terms of specificity, but I think those are great examples of how to do that well. Um, I think 
in distress tolerance, again, half smiling and willing hands is terrific. It's concrete. It's clear how to do it. You can, you know, give examples of a famous painting that looks like that. You know, you can say like there's stuff in there about what exactly to do with your face and the muscles around your mouth. Like, I just love that it's they're very, very specific and concrete skills. I think that's super helpful. Um, I think in emotion regulation, the functions of emotion, I think it's handout three is fantastic. It's super logical. It helps make sense of, you know, what feels emotions can feel like very unfamiliar and very kind of hard to understand. And I, I really love that. Um, you know, in uh, in checking the facts, checking the facts can be great. It can also be problematic. And Rachel's going to get to that. But um, you may get questions about like what's the threat there's a question about what's the threat and what's the catastrophe and it's not super clear in the manual exactly like what a threat versus a catastrophe is so you might put questions about that um in emotion regulation handout nine when you're deciding whether to use problem solving or opposite action um there's one so it's sort of a flow chart for those of you who know that handout um but you know, be prepared to give examples for when the there's one situation where the emotion does not fit the facts, but acting on it is effective. Um, and I've seen, you know, uh, I think skills group leaders sometimes find that challenging to explain as well and try to gloss over it. And guess who's going to ask you for an example of that? Not only, but you have an autistic client and group, they're probably going to ask you because they're going to want to know, like, wait, like, when would that happen? You know, and just kind of, uh, hand waving explanations are not necessarily going to feel satisfying. I don't know that they should because how is anybody going to follow that chart if they don't know the answer to that question, right? But many times the autistic client may be the one who is asking the question that other people are thinking but not saying, right? Mm -hmm. So, and it's also really important, you know, to validate by, you know, really um, like validating all those questions and just kind of doing your best to, to answer them. So, um, I'm going to stop there because I'm mindful of time. And I think that brings us to uh, Charlie's going to introduce the next point. The next point is that I mentioned before that people with autism have gotten used to a strategy in life that may have started very early in life as children, if they were feeling like certain things weren't acceptable about their behavior or they were treated in certain ways, that they learn how to mask some of their features of being autistic, some of the ways they have of thinking, maybe even some of the ways they have of asking questions, some overt behaviors that people have made fun of or made comments about and all kinds of things. So masking seems to come up everywhere you read about autism and it's come up with Amara and Rachel a number of times. So uh, I wonder if you can speak to, uh, in, in doing skills training, you don't wanna add to masking you want to help people feel uh, affirmed and comfortable in in a, in learning skills and in using skills. So, what are there certain traps? I think it's Rachel put it this way: masking traps, like traps when you're teaching skills, where where masking becomes particularly relevant to to know about and to do something about. So, Rachel, I'll hand it over to you. I mean, we all mask. I mean, that's, that's the long and short of it. Everyone, everyone is... has the experience of masking something or certain parts better. Um, and with autistic masking, it is the experience of subconsciously, consciously or unconsciously, like intentionally hiding these autistic features for the purpose of fitting in, not seeming weird, different, et cetera. Um, and I think the, the key piece here is that it's done out of shame. 
it's done out of shame and the need to be accepted. These uh, masking is taught to us when we're little, you know, have quiet hands. If I'm needing to shake my hands to regulate my emotions, right? And I'm being told quiet hands, it is that much harder and it's more likely that I'm gonna have a meltdown late, right? Um, so when we see these traits as lesser than, unacceptable, essentially wrong, and how we show up to the world, basically. Um, and so when we use that neurodiversity lens and we reframe autistic traits as an element of diversity rather than being lesser than, um, that's what we're doing. And, and the problem is that there's times where autistic traits, features, um, the way the person shows up to the world in their you know, utmost comfort is not necessarily the most effective option in getting to their goal. Um, so I utilize the term, I use uh, mindful masking. Now it's not the greatest because if I'm saying my, masking comes out of shame and is this a reclaim, this is just the best I got right now. Um, but there's certain skills where therapists fall into what I call masking traps, where they're teaching a skill that encourages masking and actually perpetuates the shame. So when I teach this, I'm actually encouraging them to use that more mindful masking approach. So kind of coming in with curiosity um, that we can, uh, it's possibly a place where we're being mindful of spoons of, of the amount of energy it takes to mask. Um, what we're not saying is fake it till you make it. We are not saying that because oftentimes autistic folks are never gonna make it. And if you mask too long, it leads to burnout, right? But for just this, uh, we're, we're explaining it to clients for this instance, if you show up, if you operate in this way that doesn't feel natural to you, knowing what your goal is, you can use the energy and effort to do this little uncomfortable thing to get to your goal quicker or you can not do this and just see how much that is gonna take from you. And as long as we're introducing this as a choice, as a difference rather than a, the way you should, that's where we're, that's the difference between encouraging masking or that therapist getting trapped into teaching a masking behavior, which DBT has been accused of many times. So like I pulled a couple really good, well, what I feel are good examples, I can't, I can't go through all the masking traps, but the first one is this idea of appearing confident and interpersonal effectiveness, you know, your uh, dear man skill, the A, because my version of looking confident or when I'm confident, what you're going to see on me may be different than uh, someone else, you know, like this eye contact, this uh, physical stature, it's all really holistic in nature. And it's also true when an autistic person is under duress, it can seemingly regress, kind of take on a younger tone of voice, mannerisms look, act younger than they are because of the level of anxiety and stress. It's not, natural, not eh, necessarily a choice, right? That is the nervous system taking over and the brain protecting itself. So that being said, we're having these honest conversations with our client of how do we be effective? Um, and maybe this is a conversation better had over mess uh, text message or email, or maybe we teach them you rehearse this until it's like a script, until you're like on stage. Um, if that's gonna be most effective, knowing that it isn't the natural state of being. Um, and then we have this kind of expectation, you know, societal expectation that in responses must be instant, you know, yes or no. And people are conditioned to say yes or no. And then if you don't, you if, if you say yes and then you don't do it, it's kind of a fawn response initially. If you're saying no, it's, considered oppositional defiance. 
And yet the person really needs that processing time. So we get really used to, um, I have clients practice the script of, hold on, I need some time to process. Let me get back to you on that, especially as we move into that negotiation scale, especially as this instant back and forth is expected. And it may not be the type of thing where a hyper-connected brain that takes a, a minute to process can produce. So that's another way that we kind of approach the dear man skill. Um, there's the distress tolerance skill, the willfulness. This is a huge one. Um, I really, really caution therapists to be extremely, extremely careful with this skill because uh, we really portray willfulness as a choice. Um, on our handout, we say refusing to tolerate, giving up attachment to me, me, me. And, you know, autistic clients who have these differences have a lot of them are accused of being selfish and it's a lot of shame, right? Um, and me, 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 that's selfish. You know, I can't be in a room because the noise is too loud. That's selfish. I am prioritizing my needs over other people's. And yet, you know, I physically can't exist because that's pain and these things are incredibly shame inducing. And so when we have this willfulness or willingness skill, it kind of fails to account for this incredibly complex process, uh, nervous system dysregulation, that can create a willfulness or what could be perceived as uh, in any client, much less an autistic client. So when working with willingness versus willfulness, I really, really encourage the therapist to do this deep dive into this behavioral investigation with the client. You know, I have this expanding missing, expanded missing link analysis I work with. Um, we really wanna to get to the client, the clients to come to that conclusion of willfulness on their own and, you know, if we are going to introduce it, kind of introducing it tentatively, you know, there is this one thing, could it be there's an element of willfulness going on here? Just in a very tentative way. So we're not re-traumatizing with, you are this thing, and now the client is shamed again. Um, and then the last of the traps that I kind of wanted to talk a little bit about is um, the check the facts that Amara referred to, because you know, similar to other marginalized groups, you know, are there, as therapists, we really need to act with enough neurohumility to understand that our view of reality is just inherently different from that of our clients, even if we share some intersectionality and some identity pieces. Um, with checking the facts, we're really assisting our clients in looking for judgments. And when a client identifies something as a fact, we just need to believe them and really help them operate effectively rather than challenging their perception of reality because a lot of autistic folks are really really good at seeing patterns and sometimes we're not always so great in communicating those patterns effectively um, so the facts are still there it's just putting words and articulating them is the issue and so if we're validating the client as they express things and helping them operate effectively in the context of it can be a lot less traumatizing than just saying, no, you're wrong, that didn't happen. Did you actually see that? Um, there's a lot of others, but I'm gonna pause there. because. Wow, another great answer of so much detail. And uh, Amara, was there anything you wanted to add to that? Or are you ready to move on? Um, I'm just being mindful of time. I think that was um, great. Thank you, Rachel, for, for bringing up all those really important things. Yeah, you've definitely highlighted, both of you have, you've probably changed my practice in the last few weeks uh, in a number, uh, just to heightened my awareness, and maybe not just with autistic folks, but really 
uh, how many different there are ways there are of people coming to grips with reality and, and that people have different neurotypes. Um, so really being uh, asking myself over and over again, wait a minute, well, maybe this person needs to do it this way. Maybe this person needs to not speak right now. Or maybe this person needs to move around. Or maybe this person needs to use some behaviors to calm down. Or it's just sort of like opens the door to an enormous range of human potential and human styles. And so I, th I think it's a big topic and I really appreciate what you guys are saying. Now, the next topic is related to this because it's kind of like, um, how, in how many ways it's possible for therapists and skills trainers to unintentionally invalidate people with uh, autistic uh, or ADHD uh, neurotypes, like all, all these ways of, that, that, that we end up pathologizing people for their characteristics. And so I just wonder if you could say something about approaches that therapists and skills trainers can take to be alert to this possibility of invalidating autistic folks and, um, and, and how to, um, you know, and if there are certain skills around which invalidation are, is more likely to come up, if you could say something about that. Absolutely. Um, so I also just want to say that like, Charlie, what you were saying about being aware that there could be different neurotypes, different interpretations, different realities. I think that adapting DBT to better serve autistic clients and ADHD clients is very, in my mind, closely connected to adapting DBT to better serve various diverse populations, right? There's been a lot of discussion about that for BIPOC populations and others. Um, and I think the same, some of the same types of difficulties like um, the difficulties with uh, checking the facts and not making our assumptions about our reality as the therapist, you know, not assuming that that is the same as the client's reality, I think is, it's all part of the same, you know, kind of thing, right? It's all part of this kind of humility about my experience is my experience. I need to like really be curious about this other person's, you know, lived experience and life experiences and, you know, not making assumptions. So I think it just falls into that. And I think um, this question about unintentional invalidation, it's definitely something that can easily happen with autistic clients. And it's also something that I hear often can uh, happen with other diverse clients who may have life experiences that are different from, and are even values and goals that are different than the therapists, right? And we want to make sure that we're we're centering the client's reality and not the therapist's reality, because it's, of course, easier to center our own reality, but it might not work for clients who are different. Um, so I think in terms of avoiding, the, avoiding unintentional invalidation, how do we make sure that, of course, as DBT therapists, we care so much about being validating, right? We have a whole set of theories, the biosocial model about how harmful, um, you know, invalidation can be, and, you know, we're, we don't want to perpetuate that in therapy and we work all really hard, you know, so many levels of validation to try to be validating. So I just really want to acknowledge those fabulous intentions um, and make some suggestions about how, you know, to make sure to be validating for um, autistic clients. Um, so I think in pre-treatment, um, Charlie hinted to this earlier, but in terms of goal setting, that 
um, getting rid of or reducing autism is not the goal. That is invalidating in and of itself. Um, and so let's make sure that the goals are truly the clients and not just shoulds from other people. Um, and autistic clients have been receiving, honestly, lots of shoulds from other people throughout their lives. And some of that may be initially brought into the room. And of course, we want to honor what autistic clients are saying and also have our little radar up for if it sounds like they're just kind of repeating a criticism from somebody else and maybe it's not their goal, like just kind of being curious about that with them and helping them with, you know, discernment of what they really want and being really validating of that, which may be a very foreign experience um, for them if the other people, both personally and professionally in their lives, have been pressing them toward conformity with um, you know, non-autistic norms, um, you know, that whole, it, it may be a very, very new experience to have somebody who's truly validating what they need. Um, I, I would also say um, one way to avoid unintentional invalidation is what we call kind of, as Rachel was saying, neurohumility or also radical authenticity, just like being willing as the therapist to not know and, you know, to be wrong. And, you know, you can say things like, hey, that's a, this is a trick I learned when I was an academic because you give a talk and usually your biggest fear is somebody's going to ask some question from left field that you don't know the answer to. And, you know, I had to learn to say, hey, gosh, that is a great question. Like, I, I don't even know the answer, but thank you for raising that. I will totally look into it. Right. And then I realized that this, uh, the skill for, you know, honoring and, uh, you know, colleagues is also really good for honoring clients, right? Like clients come in with questions that you don't realize they're going to have, right? And we want to treat them with the same amount of respect that we would to, you know, a colleague, right? Um, and so, you know, there's nothing wrong and nothing shameful about not knowing the answer all the time. And, you know, you can be really validating when you don't know. Um, I would say also, the, I said earlier, really encouraging answering to the best of your knowledge, or at least validating and, re and reinforcing all questions, right? Don't pathologize question answering, right? Curiosity is, and this is um, one of my values, I think curiosity is a good thing, right? Being, you know, having lots of questions is a good thing. And many autistic people have been uh, pathologized for that, you know, throughout their lives by many people, not by all people. I know some of the most formative people in my life have been the people who encourage those questions. And, you know, don't we all want to be that wonderful, you know, person in our clients' lives to be really validating to them and helping them, you know, really believe in themselves and, um, you know, uh, be curious and grow, right? Um, I would say in terms of specifics, um, just places where we could be invalidating and, and ways to not be um in distress tolerance, um, there's a uh, page about an adapting DBT for addictions, um, where it says, uh, are there any of these things that you do like over and over again, and you've tried to cut down on them, but you haven't been able to. And um, that seems like a 
a little bit of a risky one for autistic clients because autistic people tend to have very passionate interests and hobbies and things like that. And many have been told by other people that they should cut down on those things. And they have maybe even been subject to interventions to try to cut down on those things. And they may not be able to because guess what? They need those things, right? These are our spin special interests, right? Um, so I think we want to be careful with autistic clients that that handout, which has a different intention, doesn't um, get, it doesn't pathologize spins, which are actually a really, really important thing for autistic people, right? If, if some, and I think that theoretically, I think, well, is this something that you've been trying to cut down on because other people are giving you flack about it versus something you're trying to cut down on because it's actually harmful? Um, I think that's a bit, a big difference in terms of differentiating, like, am I a um, accidentally pathologizing sort of a passion or a spin versus um, is it something that actually is, you know, an addictive problem for this person to which these addiction skills might actually apply. Um, I think in, um, in emotion regulation, there's a page about emotion myths, um, and uh, I'm not going to go through all of those, but I just say be careful not to invalidate the valid, right? We learn with validation that we need to validate the valid. Um, but let's make sure not to invalidate, you know, a reality or even a, a value system that might be valid, right? Because it's different than ours, right? There's some neurotypical or at least non-autistic assumptions in some of those emotion myths. Um, in terms of emotion regulation, accumulating positive emotions in the short term, I think this is an, an issue that I, I deal with for all clients, but just be, there's a sort of generic list that's provided to give some ideas. But be aware that like the events, it, not all events on that list may be pleasant for all people. Some of those events, some of those options may be very unpleasant for some people, right? So make sure that whatever the whole point of the skill, and I, I think this speaks to Charlie's kind of, you know, theoretical conceptual approach to DBT, right? The whole point of accumulating positive emotions is to do things that you enjoy, right? Not to do things that somebody else enjoys or that you might not enjoy. Um, so I think just with that skill, just make sure that clients are choosing things that are pleasant for them and also make sure that you're not, you know, maybe organizing something is pleasant for them. And maybe that's not something as the therapist that you would find pleasant, but maybe that actually brings them a lot of joy, right? So just make sure you're really validating whatever it is that they find pleasant, even if it's not something that you would find pleasant or that the manual says is pleasant. Um, Accumulating positive emotions in the long term, there's this wonderful values and priorities list. I think that that is a great tool. It sort of comes from kind of the ACT world. Um, great tool to help people really get in touch with what they want. And I know a lot of people run into, um, when they first go through it, kind of shoulds, right? We come up with shoulds, like, oh, values. Values are like, they've been, that's kind of a loaded term that can have kind of cultural, like, should kind of implications. And I think we can help when we introduce that to say, this is really about what you want. And you may notice, you know, your mom's voice popping up in your head or your, you know, ex's voice popping up or your boss's voice popping up in your head saying, or your, you know, church's voice popping up saying what you should want. But this list is actually about what you actually want, right? So just be aware that that, that voice could be popping up those shoulds could be popping up, but that's not what this is about, right? So this could be a super validating thing, but it can also be an invalidating thing if 
you know, the client's bringing in shame. They're afraid, well, maybe you have the same kind of value system as all these other people whose shoulds I have in my head, right? And so I'm giving the correct masked answers rather than the, my actual real answers, right? Like we have to be really intentional about creating a safe space for them to be able to be honest about what they actually want because um, that may have been judged very heavily in the past. Um, coping ahead, I think we need to make sure that, and this is again, emotion regulation, making sure that the coping ahead plan is realistic based on clients' needs and abilities or disabilities. Um, people, It's easy for people to kind of make a, oh, I'll just do this. And I think, you know, all as DBT therapists, we've probably all seen somebody make initially make a really unrealistic coping plan. But it, just be aware that, you know, autistic clients have been being told by other people for a long, long time that they should be able to do X, Y, or Z that may not be realistic for them. And so I always ask kind of like, okay, well, how, how is that actually happening? How would you do that? Like, and is there going to be anything that gets in the way of that? And, you know, just kind of being really um, curious with them and making sure that the plan is realistic. I see Rachel raising a finger, yeah. so go, go for I it. I just Rachel. wanted to insert here. Um, this is a place also where unintentional invalidation, uh, when we are doing interpersonal effectiveness with the dear man and writing a script, there's so often this debate of if a client asks for help writing a dear script, do we assist them in providing the words or do we encourage them to do it on their own? And it's, it's very true that there's a lot of folks who may always need assistance in actually taking, in, in hearing the words, something to make their own versus um, generating it themselves. And so as therapists, that when a client says, please help me write this, right. that you actually can provide words for some folks because they may not actually be able to generate it on their own. Or if they do, it just, it did the, the, uh, weight on them of how much that script took to produce is so much heavier than if, if you had assisted them by providing words. So I just wanted to jump in there with that because that really generated that one. That's a great point. And I, I do think it brings up, you know, one of the things that can be invalidating is the, you know, societal assumption that everybody should be, this is a very Western society assumption that people, everybody should be perfectly independent. People should leave DBT being able to do all of these skills like perfectly independently without anybody helping them. And I don't think that's realistic for a lot of clients, but certainly for a lot of autistic clients, they may continue to need, um, you know, the person who did my um, autism, diagnosed me with autism as an adult, um, I really appreciated that she said, hey, you know what, you've sort of, you have a system of other people that you can ask when you don't know how to handle a social situation, or you don't know how something you say might land. And that's awesome. Like that's completely valid to need, right? That's not like something you have to make a goal of getting rid of, because if your brain mm -hmm. just isn't on the same wavelength as other people, you know, being able to uh, reach out to other people and ask for help and, you know, have those other, you know, kind of wing people in your life, you know, who support you is, it's not a bad thing. It's a perfectly valid thing. Right. And so I think we don't, we don't want to imply that, you know, perfect individual, um, uh, independence is necessarily always the appropriate goal for, for everyone. Um, I think uh, I just want to say one or two things about emotion, uh, interpersonal effectiveness. Um, this is a place where uh, I think because it can, there can be masking traps and also because of unintentional invalidation where um, DBT has gotten a bad rep among some people, um, uh, autistic people who have seen it as kind of just enforcing and teaching neurotypical norms. 
And so I think we want to be a special, I think the interpersonal effectiveness skills can be incredibly helpful, used mindfully um, for autistic people to work towards some goals. I personally found just the step-by-step, -step, dear man, so amazing when I first was <laughs> learning how to teach that. I was like, wow, there's like a logical way to do this stuff. Um, so I would say just be aware some of the myths in interpersonal effectiveness may not be myths um, for some autistic clients. And so I'm just going to leave that at that. And then also hand out 20 behavioral strategies, um, maybe trauma triggers for some autistic clients who've been forced into ABA um, earlier in their lives. And I don't want to, ABA is a whole different discussion, but I just want to say that that can, those can land really negatively and you might want to be really cautious about those for autistic clients. Um, and they can also feel really manipulative in a way that um, feels actually really kind of unethical to some autistic clients. So I'd say you can present them as an option, but also be aware that there may be valid reasons why people are not into them. Um, so I'm going to stop there. Um, Thank you. <clears throat> Thank you again. <clears throat> I just, I've found your, you guys make such helpful comments. Uh, I've raised two boys with ADHD and I'm thinking back on things where I unintentionally invalidated them and where they could have used kind of more of this kind of understanding. So thanks. And, um, and let me say now next, the next one comes out of, um, I'll just to to make a very concrete example that brings to mind the next thing. When I teach DBT skills, um, or when I teach chain analysis, or when I teach anything where I'm trying to show people something, a DBT can be so heavily verbal that I sometimes think that DBT is like doing therapy above the neck, you know, and 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 doing therapy in the verbal world. And the verbal world is not everything. And so the question is, are there strategies? Because you know, when you do a, a chain analysis, you can also represent it visually and you can make it into a flow chart and you can have your client participate with you with their own magic marker and you're making and turn it into a sort of project together. And there's lots of things that can be like that that I think we don't think enough about and so in particular with people with autism, I wonder if you guys could comment about, are there sort of adjunctive or augmentary strategies you can use to sort of help people understand things uh, when straight verbal discussion is just not doing it? Yeah, I'm gonna um, speak briefly to that. So thank you, Charlie. Um, so I think we wanna be prepared, like you said, the, the handouts and uh, workbook is very, uh, verbal right therapy in general relies heavily on intense back and forth verbal communication um, and there may be differences in communication um, and learning needs with autistic clients um, so you know rachel already spoke to you know taking longer to respond or you know maybe needing to process out loud um, also consider adding illustrative visuals for clients who would benefit um, kind of making split spreading things across sort of the verbal and more visual. Um, Charlie gave the great example of doing uh, chain analysis, you know, visually, and there's a lot of different creative and very visual ways that can be done, very participatory. Um, 
So definitely a, a fan of that. Um, also just things like simple graphs or flow charts showing relationships between variables or change in emotional arousal over time when using skills. Um, there um, you know, are, are a few in the manual. There's like the WiseMind Venn diagram, which I think is actually a nice example. Um, and you know, others have been sort of created and shared by DBT therapists who are trying to help their clients better. Um, I want to thank um, Lori Richel and the people at UNC um, Teach who have been uh, one, one of the things that they have suggested is using more visuals with um, autistic clients. And um, I, I appreciate them suggesting that as something well known in terms of improving teaching for autistic students and you know helping with uh, self-regulation. You know, giving kids like lists of you know visual lists of things and that sort of thing. Um, I think there's a lot more work to be done in terms of developing visuals that resonate with autistic clients. And of course, the same visual is not going to resonate with every autistic client. Um, uh, colleague Melinda Brackett's been doing a lot of work on developing visuals for autistic clients. But again, I think I would love to see more kind of, you know, crowdsourcing of this and having people develop and share visuals. Um, I'm personally not great at developing visuals. Um, I do as an example of like with turning the mind um, kind of and when you first turn the mind, it's like a, a like walking across a grassy field and there's barely a track that you can even see. And it gets, you know, eventually more and more worn and more and more obvious and easier and easier to do. And then the old path kind of gets neglected and overgrown. Um, so, you know, I'll use examples like that. But I think maybe there's probably many people out there who've thought of a few interesting visual ways to explain things or illustrate things. And I, I'd love to see people sharing those things because I think it's a lot just because the standard assumption in therapy and in the manual is highly verbal. So I'm gonna leave that, leave it at that. Um, hand it over to Charlie and Rachel for the next point. Yeah, so let, let me just say about that and do a shout out to one thing that when you say about adding the visuals is that many people know about this, but maybe not everybody, that there is a place that you can go into a search engine or, or into YouTube and type in DBT hyphen RU, which mm -hmm. stands for Rutgers University. And DBT RU, mm -hmm. my, my colleague uh, Shireen Rizvi and her colleagues and students there have been now for quite a while putting skills out in three and four and seven and eight minute clips uh, mm -hmm. that are that have an illustration sort of that they have a very talented person who does uh, animation there. And so they have these cool little animations and expl clear explanations that are very specific about the skills. So people can access the skills there and it can augment other skills training. I use it myself with many of my clients. So I would just want to add that there. I love and that. Then, we use those almost every group. You do. We, we use those specific animations yeah. um, when we're introducing skills. I oftentimes pause because I have to uh, reframe some things to make them a little more neurodiversity affirmative. And, um, you know, I know they're taking straight out of the manual and my clients love them or the, the feedback I've gotten at least is that they're yeah. super receptive to them. Yeah. Same for me. Hey, look, we're going to do one more main topic here, which is such an important topic. Um, because, uh, as you guys have made perfectly clear in this and previous podcast, uh, people with autism often have heightened uh, differences in how they register things sent in their sensation, sensory uh, experience. So heightened 
experiences of sound or 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 light or fabric or touch or uh, smells or tastes all kinds of things there's just sort of a heightened and and differences that compared to neurotypical neurotype ways of experiencing sensory though i'm not even sure what those are since i and there's so many different ways but i wonder if you could comment a little about given the sensory experiences that people with autism sometimes have what would you highlight about teaching skills that uh, to keep this in mind and what do you have to adapt and where might you run into trouble so i'll just hand this over to either of you this will be our final topic for a few minutes here so with sensory i, I want to explain it's not just heightened um, there's also hyposensitivity, so we almost need more input to feel anything. And I think it's really important to keep both in our minds as we're working with clients. Um, and it's also really important to introduce the eight sensory sens systems, not just the five that we've talked about a little bit in previous podcasts. Because um, if I have a hyposensitive interoceptive system, so knowing what's going on inside of me and I'm not, I can't quite tell I'm hungry, but I'm super dysregulated and, and I don't know why it could be. And in knowing that about myself, that I'm hungry and not realizing it. Um, I really, really love giving the clients this, um, you feel like shit.com that somebody sent out on the DBT listserv because it literally will run people through the, have you had something to drink today? Have you taken your medicine? Are you hungry? And it really is very clear in the directives. Okay, go get a snack. Or is it too cold or warm? Are you able to adjust the temperature? So it cues those uh, those uh, conversations, um, I'm sorry, those um, almost links in the chain or the missing link of why am I dysregulated? Mm. Um, so it's almost like a regulation missing link analysis, if you will. Um, but hypersensitivity really needs to be taken into account when we are going through those chain analysis, especially when it comes to things like self-injurious behavior, we're discussing distraction, self-soothing techniques, because like if an allistic client goes, oh no, and they're frustrated, they smack themselves in the head, right? We don't pathologize that generally. Um, and if there's an autistic client who has low interoceptive uh, sensitivities or awareness that hits himself in the head and it causes a mark, we as therapists may see that differently. Or if a client likes to self-soothe by taking a hot shower and then they're burning their skin because they're not registering the burn. Well, what I'm not saying is we should accept and encourage these behaviors uh, because this, you know, I'm guessing our clients are not uh, having a goal of harming themselves. And yet I really uh, want to encourage people to think about kind of working with the client about the reasons why it's happening this way, understanding just beyond the self-injurious behavior, um, that we're doing our, our chain analysis and really bringing up this knowledge, knowing this, having this awareness of sensory differences in it is imperative as we're helping our clients. Um, and the implica implications are really just to be mindful. I've spoken at length previously and then on our listserv about adding the S to the please skill to optimize emotion regulation, reducing vulnerability to emotion mind. We really need to be balancing our sensory input. So if a client's kind of stuck and they're unconsciously, they may be unconsciously like stifling a movement, a stim, they may not even know they're doing it because of masking for so long. Um, 
in distress tolerance, in, in self-soothe, in uh, we are teaching our clients to stim. We are teaching them to use their sensory systems, all of our clients, to regulate their emotions um, using the... Give me one more second. I'm going to kind of skip this. I, I do want to do like a, a shout out using these extra three sensory systems, distraction, self-soothing, emotion regulation. So the interoceptive system, the vestibular system, the um, proprioceptive system, we can sometimes substitute an, uh, a behavior that, to the one that was causing harm that may be, um, may be actually serving a regulating pur purpose. This is where I want to uh, shout out to my, my colleague. His name is Cade Sharp. He works with kids and adolescents in Washington state. And he's really the one that brought to my awareness that when he works with somebody who bangs their head because it is helping regulate them at that time, he just suggests gently to, why don't you try turning yourself upside down? Because he has found and the clients have found that the vestibular input of inverting the head, like laying on the edge of a bed and sticking your head over causes a similar regulation response to this other need that is more self-harming. Um, so we're working with the client's urges rather than against them directly, um, especially because head banging can be so shaming for folks to talk about because it is that regulation need and yet it is a form of what we consider self-interest behavior. So when we're teaching these skills from our proprioceptive system, that's knowing where our body is in space, we can teach movement. We can teach, you know, how to upregulate or downregulate, crossing the midline of the body. Kind of, if our brain is not sure where our body is in space, using things like weighted blankets, compressing clothing to to regulate in that way, or the opposite, if we're feeling uh, kind of constricted, seeing if maybe it's that we need to change our clothing. Um, vestibular system, using things like spinning, rocking. Go ahead, Mara. I just wanted to throw in that um, a lot of what Rachel's talking about is for for children. There are a lot of occupational therapists who um, provide sensory integration type of services, and um, that can include things like you know sensory alternative developing sensory alternatives, what we call sensory diets, which is kind of a proactive like sensory input plan um, as an alternative to um, you know harmful or otherwise um, problematic. Um, you know, sensory seeking behaviors. Um, it is hard for adults to find occupational therapists who do that with adults. So that might be something you find yourself kind of called to um, do. But if anybody wants to learn more about this, um, searching for sensory integration, um, sensory processing might be things you can learn about. I'm not suggesting you step into the domain of OTs, but it is hard for adults to find um, OTs who know how to work on this, um, whereas there's actually quite a few who do it with children. So, yeah. And there's there's a couple of them here in Maryland um, that I've connected with who are fabulous, but really kind of what we're doing in teaching self-soothing, using the senses, teaching, um, teaching even using um, strong sensations to help ground, we really are teaching use of those sensory systems and um, so, you know, collaborating with those OTs, we can take our um, cues from the kid, child and adolescent OTs as well, because what's helping a kid can also help adults. It just depends on how it's presented. Um, Tell you, there's the, the richness of this. I think you guys 
since you live in this world and you uh, focus on this world, I think you may underestimate how many things you've covered that'll be new to other people or that people maybe have just thought a little about and you're expanding a little bit. I mean, it's, and so I really I thank you for covering and I know you've had to cover things quickly and I know you have a lot more to say. And if people wanna reach out to you guys, I know you both consult to other people about um, using DBT and other models with uh, autism and ADHD. So you guys can reach out to them. You can come through my website if you wanna leave an email and I can put you in touch with them and they can answer questions as long as they don't get flooded with too many at once um, and I'll, I'll let them handle their own limits about that. And, uh, and I wanna say, Rachel, that was so interesting what your colleague said about putting your head down because I'm, I'm not too long ago, my wife was going through um, vertigo, which is a terrible syndrome to mm -hmm. go through. It really throws you. And it, this is a standard approach to vertigo is you, you lie there and there's various maneuvers with vertigo to try to help interrupting vertigo and, and which is basically a dysregulation of the vestibular apparatus that you have inside you want to use your eight sensory systems and so you know you just look everywhere you look you see possible adaptations that are already naturally existing in the world you just don't think of them as what you would incorporate in skills training but that's so cool and and take kids you know, if you look at six kids lined up at a gymnastics studio and they're waiting to jump on the trampoline and one of those kids is actually bouncing around and the others are standing still, you, you just figure that kid bouncing around shouldn't be pathologized. That, they're doing what they need to do actually in order to wait in line which uh, other people can stand still in line. Not everybody can stand. So it's like there's so many examples of this to look around if you open your mind in a non-judgmental way and just affirm that people are doing what they need to do and try to make it adaptive rather than to try to correct people and get people to stop doing stuff. So hey, you guys have just, I think, opened a whole vein of possibilities here. So thank you so much. Um, now for having us. Yeah, you're totally welcome. It just was great. Um, I want to do one one shout out here at the end is to uh, I want to thank uh, as I've done before NEABPD uh, supports and sponsors this podcast. Uh, you can get to them at borderlinepersonalitydisorder.org and uh, and they have a fabulous website with lots of learning resources and um, about borderline personality disorder, about DBT and other models of treatment. And they have a, an annual workshop coming up that was hosted for years and years and years by our esteemed colleague, Seth Axelrod, who passed away last year. Uh, and, and Seth was on this podcast uh, four times talking about his experiences with cancer. And, um, and, and so they have their annual Yale NEA BPD conference on May 5th, which is a Friday. You can either go virtually or you can go in person. So it's a hybrid conference this year focused on attachment and trauma, and it's always really good. Um, so I just wanted to mention that in case you listen to this podcast before May 5th, <laughs> which is coming up pretty quick, and you can go to NEA BPD's website 
to find out more about registering for that conference. So thanks very much to Rachel and to Amara. I've really, I've really enjoyed this. I really appreciate your input. And I'll let you know anything that I hear from other people, I'll pass it on to you. Um, so thank you. Yeah. Thank you, Charlie. Thank you for having us and allowing our voices to be heard. And absolutely, if people want to write, you know, I'd be happy to respond. Assuming Amara, you're in the same boat. Um, yeah because it's clearly something that's very important no, to both of us. And, and it's important to a lot of people. You're going to have a lot of fans in Sweden. I think I passed on an email <laughs> that my dear friend, Anna Lindstrom, who is one of the senior people in DBT in Sweden for a long time now, uh, wrote and said, oh my God, she loves these podcasts you guys have been doing. And she said she's going to be sending it out to the whole Swedish DBT community because people are always asking what to do about autism. So, and, and I'm sure Sweden's not alone. This is just some place I happen to have a connection. So, so prepare yourselves, right? <laughs> study your languages. <laughs> okay. okay, we're gonna end, we could talk on and on, but um, we're gonna stop now. So thank you everybody for tuning in. Bye-bye. <clears throat>